pray. Lord, it is our privilege to be here this week together to worship you in spirit and in truth. You've given us yet another Lord's Day of freedom to worship and to proclaim your truth without harassment from outsiders or from the government. And for that, we praise you. And so help us now, Father, especially today as this text is inherently controversial in our culture, both this week and next. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would fill this preacher with your spirit. And may what is said be said in humility and with grace and clarity. And Father, I pray that the women of our congregation would be blessed and not unduly disturbed by what your spirit has to say to the women of the church. And so be glorified in our time, O Father, and we'll give you thanks and praise for what you intend to do through it, even now before we begin, for we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is one of those texts that every preacher, I think, approaches with some fear and trepidation. Um, because we want to be honoring to the women of the church, and, and certainly Paul was that, but we live in a day when women's issues and gender issues are so controversial. Now, there are going to be points in this service where you men are going to feel something inside of you that says, say amen, <laughs> and you just go ahead and do that because I think the women would be encouraged by that and, and perhaps even a little bit instructive to hear your heart. And, uh, and without straying too far away from my notes, which always gets me in trouble, let's just dive in and, and look at it today. First Timothy chapter 2, just by way of an introduction, we come to this, first, uh, this part of First Timothy where Paul begins speaking, as I said, to the women of the church. And you'll remember that this is a church that started out so well. And Paul himself, perhaps, was the founder of this church. But false teaching had since crept in and was threatening to unravel the beautiful tapestry of grace that the Holy Spirit had created. And so Paul sends his young protege, Timothy, on a specific mission to the church of Ephesus. He is going to correct the false teaching and re-instruct the church on how believers should behave as members of the household of God. This is a very relevant text for our time, a very relevant text for our time, to say the least. There's never been a season in Western history, I think it could be argued at least, where the general populace has been so consumed with gender issues. Of course, for most of the past century, there has existed what has variously been termed the battle of the sexes, the women's liberation movement. But today, the battle for equality among the sexes is virtually dominating the collective conversation of our culture. And frankly, it shouldn't be surprising that this kind of Conflict is raging in society. Things like that have always happened. We understand that even in America, a country that was founded on biblical principles, the idea 
of submission to the revealed will, will of God. The idea that we should listen to what a deity, the deity, God himself, has said on these issues is abominable to our culture and has become irrelevant. And they have jettisoned it a long time ago. People, frankly, want to do what they want to do. Whatever they think is best for themselves. American individualism is grounded in the idea that everyone should get whatever they want, whenever they want it. Without any limitations, without any restraint, regardless of the effects that it may have on other people and on the culture and world at large. Everyone should be allowed to get his or her own way. This is a world where self rules. The self rules. Uh, This is the age of the selfie. This is the time of self-ambition and self-actualization and self-gratification and ultimately self-glorification, which takes us back to the selfie. Isn't that what it's about? It's about self-glorification. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that there is constant conflict when everyone is looking out for number one. And this is what James, at the end, close to the end of the New Testament, wrote about when, in James chapter 4, he asks this question. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You lust and you do not have, so you murder, which is a reference to anger, You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The point of this text is this. You do what you do because you want what you want. And when you pursue what you want, and it's contrary to what someone else wants, there's conflict. There's conflict. And this is what we see in our society. Everyone wants what they want, and they're willing to fight to get it. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. I understand this. We don't know... Um, we don't know the depths of this and how far it will go, but we do know this, that the word of God speaks very clearly. Everyone wants what they want. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And so it's not surprising that the battle of the sexes rages in society. What is surprising is that more and more it tends to rear its ugly head in the church. Beloved, the church... um, The church should be a different place than the world. It should be different in a lot of ways. And I think the modern church is losing the the doctrine of separation. That we are to be in the world, can't help that, if we're alive, but not of the world. And somehow we feel more spiritual, more righteous, more moral than the world as long as we may be moving in the same direction as they are, but we're about 10 steps behind them. And as long as we stay behind them, we feel good about ourselves. And yet, where the world is in relation to us is not the standard that God has established by which we are to judge ourselves. Rather, it is the Word of God. Um, Over the years, you've heard me say things like, 
We don't know how to pray until God teaches us through his word. We don't know how to be married and stay married until God teaches us through his word. We don't know how to have friendships until God teaches us through his word. And it is also true that we don't know how men and women are to function with one another in the household of God until God teaches us by his word. The wonderful thing, however, is that the word of God does teach It teaches us how men and women and males and females, members of the body of Christ, are to relate to one another. And its teaching is not merely for husbands and wives. It's for men and women, even young men and young women in general. It speaks to all of us. The word of God is even sufficient for this. Now, for the past 30 years or so, Some who call themselves conservative evangelical Christians have begun taking the word of God and what it says about men and women and reforming it, reinterpreting the texts of scripture in such a way that conforms more to the pattern of our society and and wanting to kind of put God's word as a stamp of approval on a little lesser form of what's going on in the world. And this philosophy is called evangelical feminism. And it's been around for a while, and you've seen it, though you may not have always been able to identify it. And it's caused significant strife in the church. Even in our little church, there have been some who have decided that they can no longer stay in fellowship with us because of their newly adopted position on evangelical feminism. It affects even us. And so this is important, but that's not why primarily it's important. The only reason I even tell you that is to say this is, a, this is an issue that's near and dear to every pastor who's seeking to be faithful in America. And so while this may be a passage that we approach with fear and trepidation, it's one that we have to approach, one that we have to preach. Now, I realize there's no way that I'm going to reverse the tide of Christian culture on this issue by preaching a couple of sermons out of 1 Timothy. Nevertheless, like Timothy, God has put me and every other pastor who's seeking to be faithful in the church with a mission, namely to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen? Man, you can just practice saying amen now. God has given me the duty of preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, you, if you are a part of this church or you're visiting a church, this church today, you are visiting a church that believes in expository preaching. And what that means is we preach every text verse by verse. Sometimes we do topical things, but even then we try to be very careful that it's based on exposition. So one of the beautiful things about that, one of the safety issues or the Uh, uh, one of the things that keeps us safe through expository preaching is you can't skip anything. Just because it's uncomfortable or makes you feel a, a little bit queasy about an issue, it doesn't matter. The next verse is the next verse. This is what God has said, and we should receive it as such. Now, as we come to the text, this next section of the first letter to Timothy, Paul has already addressed the men in chapter 1. They were guilty of being divisive. The false teaching was coming through the men. And so Paul instructs Timothy to bring the word of God to bear on the situation for the purpose of correction. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 8, he concludes his exhortation, look with me now, about the men by saying this, I desire then that in every place, every place probably meaning every house church, that I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Now why did he say without anger and quarreling? Because the men, because of the false teaching, were angry and quarreling. Now in verses 9 through 15, he transitions from divisive men to distractive women. From divisive men to distractive women. Now notice what Paul says in verse 9. Likewise also. Likewise also. This phrase points back to the first words of verse 8, where Paul says, I desire. Now that's not intuitive for you in the Greek in the English, but in the Greek it is. The word here that Paul uses, I desire, is bulamai, which is a desire of command. It isn't just I hope or I wish or gee, you might accept this counsel or not. This is the desire of command. He is gently and very purposefully commanding them commanding Paul and commanding the men and women of the church to listen to his instruction. Paul is speaking with the full authority of an apostle. He's saying, I command, I desire that men should give up their anger and their arguing and rather with holy hands come together as as men in the body of Christ and lead the church in prayer. Unified, unity-driven prayer. And then in verse 9, he says, likewise, also the women. So you kind of get the, the theme here. You kind of get the tenor here. In other words, likewise, the women. He's saying, as I have addressed concerns about the men in the body of Christ when the church gathers, so I have instructions for the women as well. The men tended to hinder worship by their causing division. And on the other hand, The women tended to hinder worship by causing distraction. How were they causing distraction to worship? Well, in two specific ways. First, by the way they dressed. And second, by their insistence on teaching the body when it gathered. Now, this morning, we're only going to have time to cover the first, and I really want to reserve uh, the whole message next week to cover the second one, and that one's even more controversial than this one, so you don't want to miss it. And what is that whole thing about women shall be saved through childbearing? You got to come and hear that. Uh, <laughs> and pray for me. <laughs> uh, so this morning, we're just going to cover the first one. Now, all of that is introduction. Let's stand together and read the text and let God speak for himself. Beginning with verse 8, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, 
she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now let me say before I add the blessing, some of this means what it may not appear that it means. And I will show you that in the context and in the, in, in the original language as well. And I think you'll be blessed in the end. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and you can be seated. Now you know that since the beginning of our study, we've been trying to learn what it means to live a gospel-shaped life. I want to learn what it means to be a gospel-shaped husband. I want to learn what it means to be a gospel-shaped dad, and I want to conform to that more and more because the gospel is good news, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the gospel is the motivating power that changes us as believers and conforms us more and more to the image of his son. All of this, therefore, is about us becoming more like Christ. I want to be more Christ-like husband. And so to say gospel-shaped simply means, I want a gospel-shaped life. It just means I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more like Christ. Don't you? And don't you see areas in your life where you're not like Christ and you want to be like him? And haven't you experienced as a child of God that when that change happens, where you were not like Christ in a particular area and you become more like Christ, that there's more joy over this side than there is on that? And so this is about the gospel-shaped life. And Paul is now focused on how the women of the church can live in such a way that demonstrates that they have been and are being changed by the power of the grace of God. And I see two primary issues in verses 9 and 10 pertaining to women in the church. Number one, the attitude of the gospel-shaped woman or attitudes And number two, the attire of the gospel-shaped woman. And he kind of weaves these in and out through this verse or so. And and so I'm going to neatly divide it up and so that we can we can comprehend it a little better. So number one, the attitudes of the gospel-shaped woman. Now, apparently, the false teaching in the church of Ephesus was having an effect on the women in the church. The nature of the false teaching probably related to the same kind of false doctrine that had, that had, taken, uh, had gotten a foothold in Corinth. Philip Towner suggests that the problem that Paul is dealing with in the pastoral epistles, and by the way, the pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The problem that Paul is addressing in these three little letters was a kind of this is going to sound really heady and theological, an overrealized eschatology. Doesn't that just warm your heart? And that's just a very compressed way to say that Jesus had taught about the coming resurrection. Paul had taught about the coming resurrection. And he made a really, really big deal out of it. Both Paul and Jesus and all of the apostles who wrote and ended up in the Bible, talked about the coming resurrection when we will stand before God and all of the suffering that we endured through this life will suddenly make sense. And so Paul is able to say, I suppose that 
the, the, the amount of suffering that we face in this life will not compare to the glory that God has prepared for all those who love him. When? In the resurrection. And, and Paul said, if I have fought the wild beasts in Ephesus for nothing, I mean, if there is no resurrection, and I did that for nothing, that I've been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead, if there is no resurrection, my life is stupid. My life doesn't make any sense at all. And so there was a promise of resurrection. Now here's what was happening in Corinth, and, and I think perhaps here in Ephesus now, is that there were some who were saying that the resurrection has already come in a spiritual way. They spiritualized it. After all, Paul himself said, we are raised with Christ. See? There it is. And we know from Titus chapter 2, verse 18, just look over there with me for just a minute. I'm not real good with pacing, but I am going to try to get done on time. 2.18. Well, that can't be right. <laughs> well, I'll find it later, but here's, here's what I wanted you to see. Hymenius, Hymenius is mentioned in Titus as one of the men who were teaching that the resurrection had already come. Now, why is that important? It's important contextually because at the very end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and this one I'm sure of, turn to 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 20, 19, holding a faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that may, they may learn not to blaspheme. What do we learn from this? Whoever Hymenius was, he had a history of teaching this false doctrine that the resurrection had already come. The resurrection had already come. This kind of teaching might explain why these false teachers in Ephesus had a low view of marriage. They were saying, don't get married. Don't get married. Just be single. Be single. After all, Jesus said that in the resurrection, there is no marriage. And the resurrection's already happened. So don't worry about getting married. And don't bog yourself down with that. It might also account for the emancipation of women from established norms. And there were a lot of norms, in, even in that society, that were acceptable to the church, rightly so. And some, who are, some of the evangelical feminists have said, Listen, what Paul was doing was just warning of the excesses that were happening in Ephesus. It was part of their culture. And the reality is that wasn't the case. The women weren't crazy. They weren't doing the things that Paul would, would tell Christian women not to do. Even the Romans were down on women dressing inappropriately. They thought it was, they thought it was odd and inappropriate when they would come to banquets and all kinds of things in their hair, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, we know from the pastoral epistles that some of the women, regardless of what the, the doctrine may have been, they were now asserting themselves into teaching roles that 
and were not designed for them. And some were choosing not to marry, not because they had the gift of singleness that Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians, but because they wanted freedom. And because of this, instead of taking care of their husband and their home and their children, 1 Timothy 5.13, they were idle, they had become busybodies and gossips, and they were causing strife in the church. Some were misusing their liberties relative to drinking wine, and some had become enslaved to it. Titus 2.3 suggests, others who had initially made a pledge to serve the Lord in their singleness had been overcome with lust and had turned their back on Christ. 1 Timothy 5, 11 and 12. In any case, some of the women in the church were being led astray. And that was apparent by the way they were dressing when they attended the gatherings for worship. And so Paul says, likewise also, the women should adorn themselves in, what are the next words? Respectable apparel. Respectable apparel. Now the word for respectable here refers to a kind of clothing that signals a person's spiritual status, or status, and I'm going to say uh, spiritual status, or special status. The gospel-shaped woman dresses in such a way that is consistent with the biblical truth that she is an adopted daughter of the king. She is in Christ. And that status should not be betrayed by the clothing that she wears. Women, young women especially, what you wear matters. It matters. And I don't mean just culturally. I don't even mean simply for the purpose of being different. We know what it's like when women just want to be different. There have been stages of, of funkiness in, in, in attire through uh, Christian history where women have adopted some of the, I don't know, just we're so glad some of those phases are over. But, uh, but what you wear matters. It matters to Christ that you wear respectable clothing. That is, you wear clothing that identifies or at least doesn't betray the reality of your special status in God's eyes. Namely, that by his grace, you are in Christ. You are part of his bride. He intends to marry you and all of us who are in the church. And by the way, the word adorn here is a Greek verb, And it is cosmios, or cosmios, from which we get our word cosmetics. It means to arrange, to put in order, to make ready. And so Paul is not telling Christian women they shouldn't put on makeup or do something nice with their hair. He's simply encouraging women to think about what your appearance will say about your love for Christ and his people. Your identity as a daughter of the king should have a bearing on what you choose to wear, especially when you come to worship. Nevertheless, as with every issue the Bible speaks to, sin and righteousness are always matters of the what? Of the heart. Sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. That's where it begins. 
Paul's primary concern was not their external attire, but their internal attitude of the heart that controlled what they chose to wear. C.J. Mahaney rightly says, any biblical discussion on modesty must address, must address the heart and not the hemline. What's that mean? Look, we're not going to set people up at the door and say, okay, wait, stop. Got to look you over. You got braids? You got gold in your hair? You got too much jewelry? Just toss it into the basket. You know, special offering. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what he's talking about. He's ad- addressing the way he always addresses. He's not saying your skirt shouldn't be this long and, and not that long or not that short. And Look, it's an issue of the heart. And your heart will dictate what you wear. That doesn't mean you can wear anything you want. That's the whole point of this. It does mean that you should be controlled by what God has done and is doing in your heart. You see, ladies, your personal wardrobe is a personal and private statement about your motive, your secret motives of the heart. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your motive should be distinct from the world. And this text suggests two such motives. Number one is modesty. And the other, self-control. Modesty, or it may be translated in your Bible, propriety. Modesty is the avoiding of clothing and allurement that is extravagant, showy, revealing, or sexually enticing. Again, as C.J. Mahaney cautions, immodesty, listen to this, Immodesty is much more than wearing a low-cut skirt or dress. It is an expression of arrogance. It reveals an absence of humility. It is the act of attracting undue attention to yourself. Modesty is humility expressed in dress. Let me say it again. Modesty is humility expressed in dress. A desire to serve others, particularly men, and not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. And we'll come to the particularly men part here in just a minute. And the second, modesty first, and then second is self-control, or your version may say, discreetly. It means restraint, moderation, for the purpose of purity. Yours and those who are looking at you. Now, ladies, I think it's safe to say that these attitudes towards dress are foreign to the typical female who this afternoon is going to be perusing the halls of the Hewlin and Ridgely Malls. And it is certainly foreign to those who rule the American fashion industry. But Paul is calling for something more from you, something better. Something better from you and for your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you worship. Paul knew what it was like to live in a godless culture. He knew what it was like to try to have a church be godly, to represent Christ well, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. That means dress too. 
and do that in the midst of a culture that is pagan. We know that because this church was in Ephesus, which was the home of the great temple of Artemis, which was, I read a couple of weeks ago, is it 10 times larger than the Parthenon? And one of the seven wonders of the world, the ancient world. It was a tourist attraction for everyone who wanted to escape the restraints of respectability and go and have a little fun. It was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And here was a church living in that and discussing the kinds of immorality that went on as part of the worship of the goddess Artemis, frankly, are not becoming for a worship service where Christ is supreme. In our day, we may not have a temple of Artemis in our city, but we're extremely loose in our culture when it comes to what women wear. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about the church. I'm just talking about the culture. Skin-tight clothes, low necklines, short dresses, short skirts, short shorts, all of which fall short of the biblical idea of modesty and self-control. Let me ask you a few modesty questions. What statement does your wardrobe make about your heart, ladies? What statement does your wardrobe make about your heart? It says something about who you are and what you value and who you serve and who you live for. What does it say about what you value? It says something. What does it say? Secondly, is your shopping for clothes and purchase of clothes informed and governed by self-control? Or again, as Mahaney says, do you take God to the gap? <laughs> and thirdly, in choosing clothes for this morning, knowing that you would come to church, whose attention did you desire and whose approval do you crave? Did you carefully consider whether your clothing choices would be worthy of your status of a daughter of God? I'm not saying you have to dress up. I dress up. Did you notice that? Everybody wants to give me advice on my ties and my shirts, and, and that's fine. And I appreciate the care and concern. I dress up. Of course, I'm the pastor. And when, I'm at go, when I go to other churches, I don't always wear a tie. Some of you have never seen me otherwise. <laughs> I don't always wear a jacket. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, is what you wear governed by Christ-besotted attitudes of the heart, namely these two mentioned in this text, modesty and self-control because you are the daughter of the king. You are the daughter of the king. Gospel-shaped women have God-shaped attitudes about what they wear. Now, that was the attitude of the God-shaped 
woman. Let's talk about the attire-shaped women. Paul in verse 9 gets real specific here. He says, look at verse 9, not with braided hair or gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Now, clearly, Paul's not prohibiting women from enhancing their beauty. That would be contrary to other scripture. Proverbs 31, the P31 woman wore clothing that had lots of color. We have Lydia, who was a, a, uh, a manufacturer of purple cloth. I suspect she wore some of what she made in order to beautify her appearance. I see, suspect she used some of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul does, however, have a specific concern. And the phrase, costly attire, is the clue. It points to the problem. Some of the women in Ephesus were dressing in such a way that flaunted their wealth. In fact, it can be demonstrated historically that many women in the upper echelons of society would spend hours and hours plating their hair with gold. It was some kind of a weaving of the hair where you would take strands of gold and kind of weave it into the whole thing. And not only that, but gold and jewels and, and pearls. And I read this week that that some of them in, in the Greco-Roman society who had the means to do so would, would arrange their hair in such a way and with such, aust- not austerity, but such opulence that, it would, that the value of it would be tens of thousands of dollars. When they came to a banquet or a ball, they appeared to have their entire fortune weaved onto their head. The restriction here is clear, isn't it? Don't come to worship with clothing that is chosen to draw attention to your wealth. In fact, don't wear clothing or hairstyle that's going to draw attention to you specifically for any reason. I remember when I was a child, my mom always got the Spiegel's catalog. (laughs) Does anybody know Spiegel's? (laughs) Wow, look at that. I thought it was a northern thing. Um, What did I know? And I remember flipping it open, and and there was a picture of a woman who uh, was walking down the fashion runway, and she had the, the oddest clothing on. It was just weird. I mean, it was probably in the 1970s, so you can just imagine. And the weirdest thing about it, hats were kind of going out, but at least in the fashion world, they were still in. And, and this particular young lady had a hat with a life-sized artificial pineapple on the top. And it must have burned its image into my mind, because every time I come to this text and the First Peter text, I think of that woman wearing a pineapple on her head. And so the message from Paul is, don't come to church with a pineapple on your head. (laughs) And really, you should never forget that, because there's all kinds of ways you can come in with a pineapple on your head. If you come in with a bouffant hairdo, you remember bouffant? Okay, that was all the rage back then, but now if you came in like that, everybody would, you know, she's got a pineapple on her head. Look at that. Now, now you guys are going to start using that, and I'm going to get in trouble. But, um, But there's different things you can do that are just strange, and they're meant to be strange and odd, and they draw attention to yourself. 
And Paul is saying, don't do that. This isn't about you. This worship service is about worshiping God, not you. And let me just tell you, you ladies, if you dress inappropriately, there will be men around you who will be tempted to worship you rather than Christ. Rather, dress in a manner, verse 10, that is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In other words, he's saying this, let your profession of godliness be evidenced in the way you live. And specifically this context, the way you dress. That's the immediate good works. And I'm told by my wife, I've been told this many, many times as we've discussed um, modest dress for our girls, that it takes work. That it is not easy because the world, the stores that you can go to around here, few, if any, have clothing that is modest, especially in the summertime, for your daughters. It is difficult. But Jesus is worth it. And your church is worth it. And women, the men around you are worth it. First Peter. Turn with me to First Peter because the Holy Spirit said this more than once in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. See if this sounds familiar. Now, let me just remind you, First Timothy was written by who? Paul. And First Peter was written by who? Peter. Different guy, different place, different context. And yet, listen to what he says. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the what? Of the heart. With the imperishable quality or the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's eyes is precious. For this is how holy women, women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, submitting to their own husbands. And not all of you have husbands. Not all of you are married. And, and maybe you will be someday. I hope you will be. Unless the Lord has given you the gift of singleness, then I hope the singleness for you is, it will be a godly experience to the end of your days. But here's what Peter is saying. Beauty is not primarily external. It is internal. And the wonderful thing about that is while external beauty will fade, internal beauty gets more and more beautiful as you become more like Christ. I know some older women, uh, and I think of, um, think of Mary Jean's mom. How old was she when she passed away? 89. And every time I saw her, I don't think I ever said this out loud, but every time I saw her, she was so dignified, right? And I thought, there is a beautiful woman. She was happy. She was friendly. She was engaging. 
I know she was sinful too. I've heard the stories. But <laughs> she would be laying in there in her bed, dying, and just, and it was killing her that she wasn't dying quicker. And she would look and she would say this to everybody Rejoice, rejoice, you have no other choice. <laughs> right? And I would think, there is a beautiful woman. And her beauty just got more and more beautiful with age. I don't mean more beautiful until you're 60. More be- I mean until you die. It is an imperishable beauty. In Proverbs 31, 30 says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is what? Vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is beautiful. That's what it means to praise. I mean, who's praising her? The people around her. And what are they saying? (laughs) This is a beauty issue. She's beautiful. She is beautiful. It is the imperishable qualities of the heart that make her beautiful. It is the hidden person of the heart. It is gentleness and quietness and service. And and ladies, you just need to know that is what is attractive to godly men. Go ahead, men. (laughs) That is what is attractive to godly men. These are precious to God as well. Peter's teaching helps us understand Paul's instruction on braids and golds and, and pearls. Paul's purpose is not to ban these things altogether, but to warn against expensive and extravagant preoccupation with one's appearance. And ladies, let me be honest and practical with you for a moment. I don't think, if our, if our let, let's, say, let's say the biblical ideal is the beam, like the balance beam, Right? And you can fall off one side into uh, wearing clothing that's extravagant and flaunts your wealth. Or you can fall off the other side into sensuality. I don't think our church falls off, our ladies tend to fall off into the flaunting their wealth. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that matches us. At least I haven't seen it in a long, long time. If there is going to be a falling off the beam, if there's going to be a falling off, it is going to be in the way our culture normally does, and that is towards sensuality. And sensual dress can be a problem. I think for the most part, when it happens... The problem is a problem of ignorance and unawareness, not intentionality. I don't think anyone's coming in here wanting to seduce men or distract from worship. I just think sometimes there's just not an awareness or hasn't been an education in this area because it's, look, it's difficult to talk about. Who wants to talk about it? I mean, I'm not going to talk to you about it. (laughs) And the men around you aren't going to talk to you about it at least very few, unless asked. And even then, it's going to be with fear and trepidation. Nobody wants to do that. 
I think many Christian women, especially young women, are not aware of what scriptures teach about how to dress as a woman of God. Just as in every other essential area of life and godliness, God has spoken about how to dress. The other thing that I think many women are simply unaware of is the effect immodesty has on men in the church. And men, you can say it again. It's a soft amen because they don't want to say it. Because there isn't a man in here who ever wants to admit that they struggle with that. And every one of us does. It's just a reality. You need to understand that all week long, Christian men are at war with the lust of the flesh. Everywhere we turn in this hyper-sexualized culture, we know we have to fight for a pure heart. When we turn the next corner, we know we're going to have to fight for a pure heart. We turn on the internet. I mean, you can put up 10 different fences to keep it out. And some smart guy is going to figure out how to get it in. We have to fight for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We don't have to go looking for sinful sensuality. It comes to us like a roaring lion seeking whom it may devour. But when we come to church, our desire is to worship God in spirit and in truth. And without distraction for one hour of the week. It's the one place besides our homes where women are not flaunting their form and wearing things that are designed to attract the attention of men. I have a friend who says, when I go to church, I sometimes want to say to a certain woman, I have come to this place to worship Christ, not you. And so, ladies, my appeal to you is an appeal to love. You remember the definition of love. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to. And I just want to tell you on behalf of the men and the young men of this church, the best way to love us when you are preparing for church is to dress in a manner that frees us to worship Christ rather than drawing our attention to you. There's a Three brave souls who said amen. (laughs) Try being up here, guys. (laughs) Some of you young single ladies are probably hoping that someday a godly man will come along and you can, you know, build a relationship and get married and have a happy life together. Can I just tell you something you may not know? Um, Godly young men are attracted to godly young women. And they tend to not be attracted to women who are immodest. In fact, 
They tend to run from them. Not in fear of them, but because they're battling all day long, every day of the week, to keep their heart pure. And they don't want to be near that. I remember there was one day when a new believer came to the church, and uh, she'd been here for a little while. She was fairly young, and she walked into the church office in the middle of the week, and uh, there were four of us, four, Brent was here at the time, and uh, us four guys were in the office, and uh, we saw her, and it was like roaches when the light comes on. <laughs> Bam! It was scatter. They all went to, and, and uh, the women in the office noticed it. And one of them took this lady outside on the porch. She told me about it later, and she said, Sweetheart, <laughs> that top you're wearing, just go ahead and take that home and burn it. <laughs> and don't ever wear it again, because you're a woman of God. And it's not that those men don't love you. It's just you make them really uncomfortable when you dress like that. That's not the kind of girl they're looking for. And so, you young ladies, focus on being the godliest young lady you can be by the grace of God. Be God's kind of woman. And in his timing, perhaps he will lead to you God's kind of man. But the way you dress says something about who you are in the heart. And that godly young man is looking for a young lady whose heart will become more and more and more beautiful. Now, having said all that, let me temper this message just a bit. First of all, let me just say again, the only reason we're talking about this topic this morning is because it is clearly on the mind of Paul in this portion of 1 Timothy. As a minister of Christ, it is my duty to preach the whole counsel of God, and this is just the next section. I would be an unfaithful pastor if I didn't preach this text and make practical application for you. Second, I want to say much to the blessing and joy of the men and the pastors in this congregation. We are so blessed to serve in a church where so many of our women delight to live in obedience to verses like this. And I know that I can say on behalf of the elders and so many men in this congregation, we praise God for you. We praise God for the heart he has given you to seek to please the Lord, even in the way that you dress. And so many of you are committed to do the hard work of finding things or even making things or amending things to wear so that they are modest and pretty and beautiful. And we praise God for that. And by doing so, your profession of godliness is evidenced by your good works. Not just these good works. These are just the ones the apostle is talking about here. Now, I've, I have spoken with men who have visited this church in the past, 
who later went out of their way to call me, to write me, or grab me on their way out and tell me how blessed they were on Sunday morning to walk through those doors and come in to, surprisingly, they would say, they surprisingly discovered in this room a real church and not a female fashion show. And for that, you were to be commended. Ladies, the love and care that you show us, the men in this church, by the way you dress, may often go unspoken, but listen to me. It does not go unnoticed. And we praise God for you. Now, on one more thought before we close. I quoted C.J. Mahaney a few times here. Um, because I listened to a fantastic message that, that all of you should listen to, men and women, I think. Um, and it's a message, you can find it on the internet, called The Soul of Modesty. And he gets a lot more specific than I have the time or the comfort to do. But he ends with, with these three things that I think, as a pastor, resonate in my heart. And... Sometimes you just don't know how to put it into words relative to our church. And so here's, here's three things. Number one, I want this church to be a church where women, motivated by grace and love for their brothers in Christ, dress modestly for the glory of God. That's number one. Number two, I also want this to be a church where the immodest and unconverted can come and be warmly welcomed and not self-righteously judged. Brothers, it shouldn't be that way. And ladies, it shouldn't be that way. And thirdly, I want this also to be a church where the newly converted, immature, and even the mature, if immodestly dressed, would be cared for through gracious correction. On this issue, the older women should be faithful to instruct the younger women. Modesty is an obligation for the whole church. And we need one another. So, how do we become like Jesus? Or how do we grow into a gospel-shaped life? We have conversations with one another. We talk about things that are important to God. We talk about things that are important to one another. We talk about things that the scriptures reveal. We try to model them, and we have the humility to learn from others how we need to change in order to conform to the image of Christ more and more for his glory and for our own joy. And so women, in God's household, Proclaim the excellencies of Christ by the unique qualities of modest dress and exemplary behavior which are precious in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth, your word. And we know this is so contrary to the world. And I don't think, however, 
that there is any man in the world who would look at one of our women and say that she is anything but beautiful. And so nothing lost there. And in your eyes, they are beautiful. And in the eyes of the men of this church, they are beautiful and growing in beauty as they grow in grace and become more like Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as men who are striving for godliness to help our wives and our daughters to teach one another and to encourage in the faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Oh, Father, make it so in our lives and in our church, we pray.